this third week of our series, two weeks ago, I started asking the question, have you found your life yet? And by that, I, you know, of course, I'm, I'm inferring or even claiming that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, your life. But the answer I've gotten as I've watched your faces and heard some of your responses is even though you may feel like you found a piece of your life, most people don't feel, feel like they've found their lives yet. They haven't yet hit that stride to discover their personal destiny. Now, here's the challenge for me. I mean, many of us who don't feel like we've found our lives, and I think I would actually put myself in that category as I begin to, as I continue to seek and search with you. We're living, though. We've been living for a long time. So how do we balance that? How do we identify the reality there? Because on one hand, we haven't found our life. On the other hand, we've been living. Well, the answer isn't real pleasant. The answer is we found a life, but it's just somebody else's. We found an existence, we found a life, but it's not the life that we were in, intended to live. I think there's several reasons for that. And the first one I'm going to give, I don't think is a New Spring thing. I'm guessing not many of you deal with this first one because you probably wouldn't pick New Spring Church if this is who you are. But there are people that basically steal a life. They don't know how to live, but they pick somebody out. Maybe it's a friend, maybe it's somebody to look up to, maybe somebody on television. Maybe in sports, maybe someone in entertainment, and they just basically decide that they're going to try to live out that person's life. They're going to pick up his or her mannerisms, the way of speaking, what they drive, what they wear. They, they steal a life. Like I say, I don't think that's most of us. You just wouldn't pick New Spring, I don't think, if that was the way you, the way you live. The, the second one, though, probably does touch more of us. You ever, you ever at Subway and you get behind the lady or the guy who's got the office order? Don't you feel bad for that person? Unless you're too busy feeling bad for yourself for being behind her. Uh, but, you know, the person, the person who's got the office order at Subway is not like the office order at McDonald's. McDonald's going to make the hamburger pretty well the way they make it. But at Subway, it's custom built, right? I mean, you know, and you get behind this person and she's got the list or he's got the list of all the sandwiches. I don't want spinach on that. I want spicy mustard on this. You know what I mean? And you sort of feel bad for this person because they've got everybody's specific list down to the detail of every sandwich. And sometimes I think about you and me. If we're not careful, we can be like the person at Subway with the office list because everybody out there has got expectations of us. And what we can do if we're not careful, we can begin to live a life that's calculated to adapt or to meet everybody's expectations. And the problem with that is if you, if you live your life that way, you can wake up one morning and not know who you are. Your parents expect this, your friends expect this, coworkers expect this, people at the university expect this, culture expects this. And the next thing you know, you're trying to meet everybody's expectations and you're making nobody happy, least of all yourself. Or the expectations thing can work the opposite, too. I've met people who, who felt the expectations of everyone, but their idea was, I'm going to go 180 degrees to the opposite. If you expect A, I'm going to give you Z. Maybe <laughs> I see this sometimes in teenagers. They're like growing up in a family with high expectations, and they've determined they're just going to blow up their life to be the very opposite of what their parents expect. I see this sometimes in people who are in unhappy relationships. It's like if you expect this out of me, wait till I show you what I give you. But in case anybody's living his or her life that way, and, and I get your point, what you're trying to say is I don't want to be that person who tries to meet everybody's expectations. Let me just tell you what I've discovered with that. Is it's just as fraudulent as the other. Because the person that you're trying to be to disrupt everyone's expectations, that's not you either. By the way, we have an expression for that kind of living, don't we? Isn't it interesting? We call it acting out. 
acting out. Well, again, maybe that's not how you and I picked up our life. Maybe, it will, maybe we're not trying to live up to everyone's expectations. I'm guessing this third category gets more of us. Years and years ago, there was a country and western superstar named Johnny Cash. And he had a song that became a hit song. And it was a song about a guy, of all, play, of all, of all things, who worked for General Motors. And he worked on the assembly line, and cars passed him by all the time, cars he could never afford, Cadillacs. And he got bitter about it. He got thinking about what he would do in order to have a car. And he decided he was going to build one of his own. He was just going to take a piece of a car home in his lunch bucket or in his mobile home every day. And he was going to take all the pieces home and assemble it and build his own car. The only problem was he did it over a period of 20 years. And the car that he ultimately built was such a monstrosity that according to Johnny Cash's song, the title weighed 60 pounds. And everybody laughed at him when he drove down because the car, you know, was built one piece at a time. That was the title of the song. I got it one piece at a time. And there are many of us, I think, who are, who are living, living life that way. We haven't discovered our life. We don't even know whose life it is. It's a monstrosity. We picked it up one piece at a time. We got some of it when we were kids, and we were trying to be like the other kids, and we got some of it in school, and some of it from our family, and some of it from the culture. We got a piece from television. We got a piece from, you know, we got it one piece at a time. Well, this whole series is about you discovering your life. And the only way that you and I can really discover our lives is to go back to the manufacturer. And that person is Jesus. And Jesus is telling us, as we've seen in the first two weeks, that he will help us discover our lives. I've been sharing with you a verse of scripture from Matthew 16, verse 24, where Jesus sums up what it means to have a relationship with him. And by the way, he doesn't say join a particular church. He doesn't say go through these rituals. Jesus just has a two-word statement, and that statement is follow me. Jesus is saying follow me to life. If you follow me, I will help you find your life. Let's read. He said, whoever wants to save his life will tear it up, but whoever is willing to use up his life for Jesus will find it. Well, grammatically, what's he saying you'll find? You will find your life. So we're going to follow Jesus. Now, the first two weeks of our series, we've kind of laid foundation. Week one, I said, if you want to find your life, you've got to be willing to think in counterculture terms because you can't follow the crowd to find life. Jesus is going in a countercultural direction, and if we're going to follow him, we've got to be prepared to fly on instrument. The second thing that we talked about last week, Jesus wants to know, are you serious? He's only interested in serious takers here in this, in this thing about finding life. But for the next six weeks, starting today, what I want to do is I want to take you to six places that Jesus wants you to follow him to. i got to just tell you this, and this is off the, off the cuff, maybe more than you want to know. But I, I began to think about what it meant to follow Jesus, and I came up with 12, 12 places Jesus goes. But I only have six weeks. And so I had to take those 12 topics, and I had to narrow them down to six so when I show you these six topics, you got to understand these are six really important places Jesus wants to take you to. But the last night before I finally sold out for the six topics, I read through the four Gospels again. Kind of scanned through them, scrolled through them. You know the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four of those are stories of Jesus. Jesus' teachings, Jesus' life, Jesus' emphases, Jesus' actions. And here's what I, here's what, and when I read through it one more time, I said, I want to be sure I'm taking New Spring to the six most important places that Jesus leads us. I was blown away how much he talked about 
where we're going today. I hate it when ministers ask me to do something physical, so I'm not going to ask you to do something physical. But if I was going to ask you, I would tell you, pat yourself on the back because you came on a really important day. This thing Jesus is going to talk about today is the very, it's the very foundation stone of finding your life. And here it is. I was amazed how many times Jesus said, in order to find your life, you have to be authentic. Jesus is calling you and me to a life of authenticity. Several things I noticed as we're just introducing this, this topic today. First of all, he was real. When Jesus came into our world, he was God coming he was God taking on skin. And if he had wanted to impress people, he could have impressed people. But listen to what the Bible says in Philippians 2. We believe this was a song that the early church sang. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. So when God took on skin, he came and he was a real person. You know, Jesus did impressive things, but not to impress people. You know, I mean, he walked on water, but it wasn't like a show he was putting on. He didn't have his disciples walking around Jerusalem with sandwich signs saying, Jesus Christ on the Sea of Galilee, two o'clock today, walking on water, be there. No. He walked on water because his disciples were freaked out in a storm. He turned water into wine. It wasn't like he was trying to do a cool marriage reception trick. They were out of wine. The host of the, of the feast was embarrassed. Jesus' mom was asking him to do something. I mean, he healed people, not for show, but he healed people because they were suffering. I'm just saying Jesus did impressive things, but he never did it to impress people. He was a real person. Number two, he encouraged people to be real. Like I said, read the Gospels. Just notice how many times he's summoning people to authenticity. Third thing is he wanted real people around him. <laughs> when Jesus called his disciples, he wasn't exactly trying to build the dream team. They were fishermen, tax collectors. Tax collectors were the lowest of the low. Radicals. I mean, they were the last thing you would expect. But they were real. They were real guys. And that's what Jesus went around him. It, it said you can't pick your parents, but Jesus did. Look what he picked, a peasant girl and a blue-collar guy, a carpenter. Jesus wanted real people around him. And guys, I want to tell you this fourth thing I'm going to say. I don't know about you, but it makes me want to just go back into worship. It makes me want to just lay on the altar and thank God. Here's the fourth thing. He could always help real people. Could I say that one more time? Jesus could always help real people. He helped real people who came just like they were. A leper who came with skin covered by ulcers. A hemorrhaging woman coming with her embarrassing bleeding. He, he could help uh, prostitutes and beggars. A thief dying on a cross. Study the Gospels and you'll discover that Jesus could always help real people. No one was ever too bad, too poor, in too much trouble, too unimportant, or too far gone. Let me say that one more time. Jesus could help people who were authentic. No one was ever too bad, too poor, in too much trouble, too unimportant, or too far gone. I don't know about you. That makes me want to worship today. He could always help real people. 
When you study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, though, you'll discover there's only one group of people Jesus could never help. He could never help pretenders. By the way, you know what's wrong with religion? Just told you. He could never help pretenders. There was only one group of people that Jesus could not help, and that was the people, those are people who were faking. And ultimately, you and I would know his, his chief antagonists as the Pharisees. They were the most religious group in Jesus' day. We would expect them to be Jesus' biggest fans, and yet these were the ones who clamored for him to be put on a cross. Now I want to beg your indulgence in the second part of this message as we move into it. Because in the second part of this talk, what we're going to do is we're going to explore what Jesus had to say to fake people about their inauthenticity. And here is the problem. It's going to sound harsh. And for all of us who are struggling to be real, what we're going to have to understand as we go through these verses is Jesus is not being harsh with us. The reason he's harsh is like the Pharisees had doubled down on this. They were not only fake, they, were, they had attitude about it. So when you, when you and I read what Jesus has to say and the harshness comes across, he's not saying that to you. But these verses are important because Jesus identifies the problem with not being real. And we need to look into that mirror. So if you'll allow me for a few moments, I want to show you four problems with being inauthentic or four aspects of being inauthentic that Jesus really emphasized. By the way, as we go through these, you'll understand why fake people are such a turnoff, okay? Let me give you the first one. I'll read it, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, You've heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. Well, basically every culture says that. Jesus said, But I say... If you're even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, or some of you have a translation that says, if you say you fool, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Verse 27, Jesus said, you've heard, you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, most of us have heard those verses in some fashion, right? And when we hear them, we sort of struggle to know exactly what Jesus is saying. Is he saying lusting after someone of the opposite sex is just as bad as adultery? No, because adultery has all kinds of ramifications. What is he saying? Before we get to this first point Jesus is making, let me ask you a question. Did you ever have to deal with somebody? Did you, did you ever have to confront somebody who had a really stinking attitude and they just have this attitude. Everybody knows they have a bad attitude. Maybe you're in management. Maybe it's a family member. You have to confront somebody who has a bad attitude. Have you ever discovered, everybody in management is going to say, oh, yeah. Have you ever discovered how difficult that is? Because what happens when you confront somebody with a stinking attitude? Almost every time they're defensive. And what are they defensive about? They're defensive about their actions. Oh, I don't do X, Y, and Z, and I do A, B, and C. And you're saying, but your problem is an attitude. Instantly, they will defend themselves by their actions. Now, here's the first point that Jesus is teaching us about an inauthentic person. He is saying they tend to focus on actions instead of attitudes. What Jesus is calling the Pharisees to understand is that their attitudes are just as stinking as people who have bad actions. They're careful about their actions because of social, you know, because of social standing, and because of, they don't want to get in trouble. But what Christ is telling them is understand something. Murder and being angry without a reason are on the same paint chip. Being angry without a reason is just a lighter shade of murder. 
Lust and adultery are on the same paint chip. Lust just a lighter shade of it. So Christ is calling them to be authentic about not just their actions. You know, here's the thing. How many of us would have done a lot of stuff if we could have gotten by with it? We just didn't get arrested. Christ is calling us to look at our actions. So the first thing he points out is inauthentic people tend to focus on actions instead of attitudes. Okay, here's the second one. Here we go. Matthew 23. What sorrow awaits you teachers of the religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites. Okay, we know the subject. It's about not being real. He calls them hypocrites. For you're careful to tithe even the tiniest income to your, of your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law like justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides, he calls them. You strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a nap, but you swallow a camel. <laughs> What's he talking about? Well, the Pharisees, you know, they, they, they were really careful about stuff they were good at and stuff that didn't require too much, like tithing on their spice rack. They would give God, you know, 10% of their cumin and, you know, 10% of their sage and real good about that. Jesus is saying, but you guys are not merciful and you don't tell the truth and you don't have faith in God. Jesus is saying, you need to take care of the more important things. Work with me for a moment. Isn't this true of inauthentic people? They tend to want to write the exam. See, when, a, when an inauthentic person is dealing with you, he or she will bonus the things that they do well and they'll discount the things they don't do well. And they write their own exam. And this is what Jesus is talking about. He's basically saying, you guys are writing the test, you're taking the test, you're acing the test, and you're bragging about acing the test. But you wrote the test. Years ago, I saw a Peanuts cartoon. I'm getting kind of old and I can't remember exactly what it was, but I think it was Charlie Brown. He had shot some arrows into a fence and he was drawing targets around where the arrows had embedded themselves. And Linus brought up to him that that might not be exactly the thing to do. Charlie Brown says it's a lot easier to hit target that way. <laughs> By the way, do you know this is, this is what's wrong with religion? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been part of a religious tradition where the people there were hypocrites and there was some stuff that, boy, I mean, these were like rules you better not break, and yet you're looking at that saying it's totally unimportant? And yet on the other hand, they had all kinds of spiritual issues. Jesus talked about that, and then in the book of Romans chapter 10, one of the most important verses in your Bible and what is wrong with religion. In Romans 10 verse 3, the Bible says, they disregarded the righteousness from God and attempted to establish their own righteousness. It's like, God, we don't want your test. We're going to write our own exam. We're going to write the test. We're going to take the test. We're going to ace the test. We're going to brag because we ace the test. And that leads us to the third thing Jesus is going to talk about. See? Here's what happens naturally. It's natural progression. If I write the exam, if I take the exam, if I ace the exam, if I brag about acing the exam, next thing on my agenda is to flunk you because you can't pass my test. Notice how Jesus talks about that in this third issue. This is in Matthew 7, verse 1. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged, for you'll be treated as you treat others. Ooh, that should cause us to have chills. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you've got a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? 
hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Now, work with me here for just a moment. Notice how that Jesus now is pairing a couple of concepts, and he does this frequently. He is pairing the, con the concept of hypocritical behavior or inauthenticity. He is pairing that with judging, and he does it frequently. Well, you shouldn't surprise us. You ever know a judgmental person? Aren't they almost always hypocrites? I mean, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but isn't it true that if you find a really judgmental person, if you pull the covers up from their own life, you discover some pretty cruddy stuff? Well, it's no, no surprise. Man, Jesus called it like Babe Ruth called the home run. I mean, Jesus is saying hypocrisy and judging go together. Let me show you something. I know, I know you don't stand in lines and do all the difficult things to attend New Spring in order to hear a language lesson, and I'm not smart enough to give you one. But let me just show you something kind of interesting. Up on the IMAX screens, you're going to see a Greek word. And it's English characters, but it's what the Greek word would sound like if it was in English characters. It's the word krites. Krites, K-R-I-T-E-S in English letters. Um, the root word is krino, K-R-I-N-O. You know what I just gave you? I just gave you the Greek word for judge. That's the word for judge. And we have English words that are, that are brought over from Greek. Uh, a similar word would be criterion or criteria, the plural. What is a criterion? Criterion is the basis for judging. So krates is the Greek word for judge. Let me throw you another one. Here's a Greek prefix, hupo. There's no Y in Greek. So if we were to bring that into English, it would be hypo. What does hypo mean? Hypo means under. Hypodermic, hypo, under, dermis, skin. Hypo means under. So krites means judge. Hypo means under. Let's put the two words together. What do we have? We have hypocrites. You know what that is? That is the Greek word for hypocrite. So do you understand now why Jesus puts judging and hypocrisy together? It's because the root word of hypocrisy is judge. It means to judge under. We have a lot of attorneys here at New Spring and some judges and, and a lot of you all in the justice department and justice system. You guys know and all of us know as Americans, it's real big for us in America to have public justice, to have justice take place where the light of day shines on it. Some of you, God forbid, unfortunately, you've had to go to divorce court. And that's a really painful experience. Suppose you had to go into divorce court. And someone came out and announced a decision to you. And the decision went like this. Your husband gets everything. He gets, all the, he gets all the money. He gets all the bank accounts. He gets all the possessions. He gets all the cars. He gets the house. He gets custody of the kids. And by the way, you're going to have to pay alimony and child support. You say, I get nothing, he gets everything? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, what was the basis of that decision? I'm sorry, I can't tell you that. Well, who was the judge? I'm sorry, I can't tell you that. Well, did anybody testify for me? I can't tell you that. Well, where did this take place? Well, in a back room back here somewhere. I can't even tell you where the room is. See, it was judging under. You know what? When we judge people, that's exactly what's going on. 
Because see, we wrote the exam, we took the exam, we aced the exam, we brag about acing the exam. Next thing we do, we flunk other people because they can't pass our exam. So what do we do? We go back to a back room somewhere and we cover up ourselves because we're not coming to be exposed to the light of day where people can look at our flaws. But we decide to judge somebody else. We judge underneath. And that is the very definition of the word hypocrite. To judge ourselves. Finally, we said, we're just following Jesus here. He says that people that are inauthentic focus on actions instead of attitudes. They tend to make up their own tests and they tend to judge others. Let me give you one more and then we'll, we'll move to the final part of the sermon. In Matthew 23, 3, Jesus talked about hypocrites, these religious elite. They don't practice what they teach. They crush people with impossible religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Look at this. Everything they do is for show. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup. Fourth point Jesus wants to make about an inauthentic life is it's all about the image. <laughs> I love Jesus' little analogy here. You went to somebody's house for dinner, and they opened up their cabinets, had sparkling dishes on the outside. You look at the inside, and they're full of filth saying, thank you, cleaned the wrong part of the dish. I just don't feel hungry tonight. And Jesus is saying, that's what inauthenticity does. Everything is about the image. Some of us, we know about that. We, we, all of our energy goes into our mask. All of our energy goes into creating a facade. Jesus is calling us. He's saying, if you want to find your life, follow me to authenticity. Follow me to being real. Jesus was real. He encouraged people to be real. He liked to hang with people who were real. And he could always help people who were real. So if you want to find your life, Jesus is saying, hey, the first place we're going, we're going to being real. We're going to be who we really are. I believe that deep inside of every one of us, there is a craving to be free. Isn't there a part of you and me that wants to get rid of the secrets? Isn't there a part of me, isn't there a part of you that's tired of paying emotional blackmail? Well, if Jesus' statements aren't enough to call you to authenticity, let me share with you several points that I think Jesus makes that will incentivize your willingness to break the mask today. Let me give you four or five things and we'll be through with this talk. Jesus is calling us to embrace the truth about ourselves today because first of all, it would end the exhaustion of pretending. Pretending is exhausting. I worked my way through college years ago, and I worked for a men's clothing store. And I learned back then, hardest work in the world is looking busy. I love to sell. Christmas season, I'd sell hand over fist. But our manager felt like if we didn't have any customers in the store, we need to look busy. We need to straighten stock, even if it was already straightened. And I learned then the hardest work in the world is looking busy. You know, it's all you can do to be you. You don't have the energy to be you and pretend. So if you were willing to be authentic today, it would end the exhaustion of pretending. Number two, it would allow you to come out of hiding. Because here's the thing. If I'm not real, in other words, if, if Mark Hoover, before his family and before you guys at New Spring, if I'm not who I really am, which, by the way, thank you so much for letting me be real. I cannot tell you what that means to me. But here's the thing, if I can't be real, I'm in hiding. 
Well, what do we know about being in hiding? We know three facts about being in hiding. Number one, it's always a dark place. Number two, it's a lonely place. And beyond that, it's a scary place. It's dark because we don't want the light to shine on us because we might be, it might be discovered. It's, it's lonely because if you're not yourself, you really never can get close to anybody. And beyond that, it's a fearful place because if you were to come out and be who you are, you're terrified that people wouldn't have anything to do with you. You know what's so ironic about that? If you were willing to be the person you really are, you'd be surprised how many people want to help you. I'm not one for cutting my audience in half right now, but I want to talk to men because I think women get this better than men do. I'm talking to some men right now, and you're 30 years old, you're 35 years old, 25 or 50, and you've never been who you are for one minute in your life because you're terrified if you had to be who you really were, you would be vulnerable. Don't you understand that it's our vulnerability that draws people to us? Don't you realize that? <laughs> who's interested in somebody who's got everything put together or who thinks they do? Nobody's expecting you to be perfect. I mean, nobody's expecting you to look like George Clooney. George Clooney doesn't look like George Clooney. Nobody's expecting you to be the greatest athlete in the world. I mean, don't you understand? It's our vulnerability that draws people to us. If I knew how to preach, I could preach this next one. I'm going to take a crack at it anyway. If you were willing to be authentic, you'd make a whole new group of connections. Because you see certain people draw certain people. And if you're not who you are, you're drawing a group of people that you wouldn't normally draw. Am I talking to anybody here? You say, Mark, everybody I date is a loser. Well, are you you? Are you yourself? Because you know what? Here's the thing. If you're not yourself, you don't know who you would draw. I have a dear friend who's an HR genius. He's told me many times, A people draw A people, C people draw C people. And if you're not yourself, you don't even know what you would draw yet. If you would be willing to be who you are, you'd have a whole new group of friends. I think you'd like them better. Here's the biggest. If you're willing to be authentic, it allows you to connect with your maker. See, Jesus can never help anybody who's pretending. He can always do business with honest people. And if you're willing to be real before God, you know the great thing you get from him is, first of all, you get forgiveness for your sins. In fact, that's how you have a relationship with Jesus. You have to come just as you are. You, cut, you get forgiveness of sins, you get help for your weaknesses, and you get assistance in all your inadequacies. If you're willing to just come to God like you are. I got three minutes, and I'm going to try to be on time today. Try. You know, I've pastored for 38 years. I've been a Christian for 50. You know what I think most people in church are trying to do, even without articulating it? I think most people in church have an idea that goes something like this. God, you just sit down over there and wait for me here. And I'm going to be over here in this workshop. And I'm going to get my life all right. And I'm going to 
be everything I need to be. We'll get it all tied up, you know, put ribbon around it with a bow on top, and we'll get it just right, and then we'll present it to you. I really think a lot of people think that way. God, I'm going to get my life just right, and we'll give it to you, and I'm going to be worthy of you. I mean, this is all passe now. Remember Dr. Phil used to ask, how's that working for you? You think that's what God wants? They're not in a million years. That's the last thing he wants. I read the story years ago. You know, back in the turn of the century, last century, and the first 50 years, as America was expanding and our cities were growing larger and larger, downtown areas had an issue. There were residents who lived in the middle of downtown areas, and of course that land became insanely valuable. And a lot of people that lived in those downtown areas, they, they, got, a ton of, they got a ton of cash for selling old ramshackle houses that happened to be in downtown areas, and there was a story of holdouts and all of that. I, I'm almost positive this was in Dallas. Let's read this story. There was an old guy that had a lot of land in downtown Dallas, and he had the most wretched old house on it. I mean, it had been beat to pieces. Windows were broken. Roof had leaks. You know, holes in the walls. And people offered him all kinds of money to sell his house, and he wouldn't sell. He'd inherited it. But one day, a developer came by, and he offered him a lot of money for his house. And the guy said, I'm not interested in selling. And so the developer said, well, what would it take? What, what, what would it take for you to sell this? So he just, just give me a number. And the guy didn't want to sell the house, so he gave him a number that was to him insanely high, embarrassingly high ridiculously high. And the developer said, fine, I'll give it to you. I'll write you a check. We'll come back a couple days from now. We'll sign the papers. And by the time the developer came over to the old guy's house, the old guy was feeling pretty guilty. You know, he felt like he had really done something kind of bad, you know, selling this property for what to him seemed like an embarrassingly sinful amount of money. So as they signed the papers, the old guy was trying to talk up the house. And he said, you know, he said, I, I know this house is old, but he said, tell you what, I think if you do some things with it, he said, you know, I need some, some windows need to be repaired with a whole new front of it, some paint and some, some work, some, some foundation work and, and, and some structural stuff. He said, I think if you got all that done, it would be a really nice place for you and your family. <laughs> and as I remember reading the story, right, the developer was a kind fella. And he reached down and picked up a huge roll, and he laid it on the table. And, of course, as you and I would expect, he showed him the picture of a glass and steel skyscraper. And here were his words. He said, sir, I'm not buying your property for what you have on it. I want it for what I'm going to do with it. God doesn't want you for what you built on your life. He wants you for what he can do with you, for what he can build up in you. See, that's your life. That's your life. Your life is what God can do with you. He wants you to bring him a vacant lot. Isn't that good news? He wants you to bring him a vacant lot. Jesus was real. He encouraged people to be real. He loved people who were real. And he could always help real people. And if you're willing to come today and just be authentic with God, 
you can get the freedom of living the life you were meant to live. And beyond that, you'll never have to pay emotional blackmail one more day. Father, thank you for the time that we've spent together. May your Holy Spirit coach us up on an individual basis in Jesus' name. Pray with me one more moment. I've said today that the only way you can have a relationship with God is to come just like you are. Forget this religious tie yourself in a bow and give yourself as a present to God. Just come like you are. You say, Mark, I want to know for sure I'm going to heaven when I die. I want to know that I'm forgiven. Well, you know what the interesting thing is? The Bible just says call. Call now. You say, well, how do I call God, Mark? I don't have his number. Yeah, you really do. Because he hears you when you pray. And I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray a prayer with you. And these aren't magic words, but if you're willing to put your heart into this, he will hear your prayer. Okay? Would you pray with me? You say, Mark, I just want a relationship with God. All right? Bring your vacant lot right now. Let's pray. Dear God, I'm a sinner. But I believe you love me anyway. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave and is alive today. I receive Jesus as my Savior and my King. In Jesus' name, amen. One more second. I know we're crowded today, and I am now three minutes into overtime. I didn't, I failed, okay? I tried to be on time. Um, if you just prayed that prayer with me, I have something I want to give you. It's free. All you got to do is go to guest services in the lobby, in the back, big one back in the lobby, a little one back by the coffee shop. I've got a DVD in here and a book I wrote. Because you can say, Mark, I just prayed, but I don't know what in the world happened to me. Well, that's, that's what this book is about. Answer a lot of questions and a coupon for a new Bible. Guys, thank you so much for being here today. Next week, we go up to the next level. We're going to find our lives.